Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 39 through 46. The title this evening is, Are You Sleeping? Are You Sleeping? Let's read verses 39 through 46 together, and then we'll see what they have to, how they speak to us. We read, Coming out... He went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. And he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Luke 9, 51 says, Jesus had steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the words set his face means he was determined. He made up his mind. Steadfastly, he determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, the significance of that is he knew full well what was going to happen to him when he got there. And now those events were about to take place. And the things that would happen to Jesus were not accidents. They were planned appointments because they had been determined and designed by the Heavenly Father And written centuries ago in the Old Testament scriptures. Luke chapter 24, verse 26 and 27 says, Jesus says, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them, that is the disciples, through the writings of Moses and all the prophets. Explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus told the disciples, this isn't something strange. This isn't something that, you know, wasn't supposed to happen. And he says, and then he took them through all the scriptures. And he showed them, hey, this has been written way before this. So we can't help but praise and worship our Savior and love him even more. When we see how courageously he went, into, he, he went to the cross. How he entered this time of suffering and eventual death. And we must always remember that he did it for us. For no other reason. He did it for us. After Jesus and his disciples finished the Passover meal, they all left the upper room together and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Or his great appeal, his great request was made to God. 
The Garden of Gethsemane was his usual place to go to be alone when he was in Jerusalem. It was a habit of Jesus to come to this place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas Iscariot, being one of the 12 disciples, knew Jesus like going there. And he knew that Jesus liked to go to the Garden of Gethsemane when he wanted to be alone. And Judas took advantage of this knowledge to help him in finding and betraying Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus would be there in the garden. So Judas led his group of Roman soldiers and the temple guards into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, who willingly went with him. Jesus went with no fight, no struggle, knowing full well what was going to happen on the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane was a small enclosed spot located at the foot of the Mount of Olives, where an olive press was located along with some olive trees. The word Gethsemane means oil press. But why did Jesus go to a garden? Of all the places he could have gone, why did he go to a garden? Well, it's interesting to see that the history of man started in a garden. In Genesis chapter 2. And so did man's sin. Happened in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. But for the redeemed, that is the believer, the whole story will end in a garden city. In Revelation chapter 1. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 21. Where there's not going to be any sin at all. But in between the Garden of Eden, where man fell in sin, and the Garden City, where God will reign and is reigning, there's the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden is where Jesus accepted the full suffering from the Father's hand. And John the Beloved tells us that when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he crossed the book Kidron. But where this event took place isn't as important as the spiritual message and the lesson that we receive from what Jesus did. There in the garden where he accepted the cup from his father's hand. The cup being that cup of suffering, the mission that he came to this earth to fulfill. The first Adam rebelled against the father in the garden of Eden. And then as a result, sin and death came into the world. But then the last Adam, Jesus Christ, submitted to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and brought life and salvation for all who will believe. Now these verses in Luke's Gospel give us Luke's version of our Lord's agony in the Garden. But he was new because Jesus knew what was going to happen to him on that fateful night. It's a passage of scripture that we should always look at with a special reverence when we come to it. The story that it records for us is one of the deep things of God. And when we read it, it should remind us of God's words to Moses when he turned aside to check out the burning uh, bush. The Lord said to Moses, take off your shoes for the place where you stand is holy ground. And as we read these verses here in Luke, it's the same thing. 
When we're looking at this passage, we are getting a close look at an intimate time with the Son and His Father. A deep and holy conversation. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage, and note them. The first thing that we see in this passage is an example of what believers should do in time of trouble. Here we see the head of the church himself, Jesus Christ, God the Son, give us that example. We're told that when he came to the Mount of Olives, the night before he was crucified, what does verse 41 say? He knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and prayed. This is a truth that stands out in both the Old and the New Testament. And the Old and the New Testament, they both give one and the same remedy for dealing with trouble in our lives. And tonight, people are in a lot of trouble. Right now. They're messed up. They don't know what to do, where to go. They're confused. Their minds are being perverted, lied to. They're in big trouble. People are looking for answers tonight. They're looking for, for solutions for their problems. They'll call their friends, their financial advisor. They'll call on psychics, psychologists, psychiatrists, the government. They'll go to alcohol or drugs to relieve the tension and stress in their lives. But not many call on God when they're in trouble. The psalmist, or God says to the psalmist in Psalm 50, 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. James chapter 5, verse 13 says, is any, he says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. And Paul said in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And everything means everything. From the smallest thing in your life to the greatest thing in your life. Great, God wants to hear from you. Paul went on to say, tell God what you need and thank you for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Jesus Christ. Prayer is the prescription Jacob used when he was afraid that his brother Esau was going to kill him for stealing his birthright. Jacob didn't steal his birthright. Esau forfeited the birthright. Esau was a carnal man. Jacob was a spiritual man. And he wanted that birthright. But when, J when Esau found out, Jacob wanted, he wanted to kill his brother Jacob for taking that birthright. Prayer was Job's course of action when his property and his children were suddenly taken from him. Prayer is the prescription that King, King Hezekiah used when King Sennacherib sent his threatening letter to King Hezekiah. And here we see prayer is the prescription that the Son of God himself wasn't ashamed to use in the days when he was here in the flesh. <clears throat> in the time of his agony, Jesus prayed. Again, a good example for us to follow. We should be willing to follow the master's prescription if we want comfort and peace in difficult times. 
Whatever other means of relief we use, let us pray. The first friend that we should turn to should be God. The first message that we should send ought to be through the th- to the throne of grace. Because there at the throne of grace, we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. No amount of depression or sadness should stop us from praying. No crushing weight or sorrow should keep us quiet before God. But you know, that's a favorite tactic of the devil. To give the man or woman who's troubled and weighed down, the one who's pressed on every side, that's what Satan likes to do. He likes to keep them from praying. That is, he wants to keep them from talking to God. And the idea is Satan says, well, you know, if God really cared about you, you wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Or if God really loved me, he wouldn't have let this, he wouldn't let this happen to me. Or I doubt that God really cares for me. So you see, we have to be careful not to fall into that temptation of being angry at God and feeling sorry for ourselves over our trouble and our hurts. The second thing that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is this. What kind of prayers a believer should make to God in time of trouble? And once again, the Lord Jesus is a model to his people. Notice what we read in verse 42. Father, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, what Jesus saw when he looked into that cup, figuratively speaking, he saw suffering. When Jesus looked in that cup, that cup of suffering is told to us all through the Bible. Listen to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 14 to chapter 53 through verse verse 14, 9 9 through 14. Now this was written, think of it now, 700 years before the crucifixion prophecy that Christ would be crucified. Listen to what it says. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation for, again, just ease of understanding. But many were amazed when they saw him, speaking of Christ. His face, speaking of Jesus, his face was so disfigured. He seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. He was beaten that badly. He was disfigured so badly that he couldn't be recognized as a man or was scarcely recognized as a human being. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. 
All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, <clears throat> that is, the Father laid on Jesus the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was unjustly condemned and led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. That is, no one with him. No family, no friends. That his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, had never deceived anyone. Jesus saw. He spoke. He surrendered. He recoiled from that horrible cup of suffering. But you know what? He yielded to it. He yielded to his Father's perfect will just the same. Paul said in Philippians 2.8, He became obedient to the point of, uh, of death, even the death of the cross. Notice the words that Jesus spoke in verse 42. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, Jesus was saying, Father, if, if, if this can happen, if salvation can come to man any other way, let it, let it not be through this cup of suffering. He knew what he was going to have to endure. He knew what he was going to go through. He knew the suffering and the torment involved. Any, any normal man would want to avoid that. He said, nevertheless, Father... Not my will, but yours be done. And we have to remember when I said any normal man, we have to remember Jesus had two distinct natures in one person. He was 100% man. And that's what we were hearing when he was calling out to the Father. If this cup can pass for me, that's the man portion. And he was also 100% God. Jesus had a human will, just like we do. And he also had a divine will. In his human will, he felt pain. He felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt sorrow and emotions, just like we all do. And when he said, not my will be done, he meant that the will that he had as a man, his own will, was a body, flesh, and blood like our own human uh, feelings. Lord, if this cap, cup can pass from me. But he said, not my will be done. Your will be done. The words Jesus prayed in the garden as a human being shows exactly what should be the attitude of a believer's prayer when they're in trouble. And like Jesus, we should tell the Heavenly Father exactly what we feel and desire. We need, Jesus, we need to speak to God honestly. We should be sincere before God because he already knows how you feel even before you tell him. So you're not hiding anything from him. You're not hiding those feelings of the Lord. Hey, I don't want to go through this. He knows that. We should carefully pray every prayer for God to take away the crosses in our life, but with the understanding, if you're willing. And we should finish this, the humble prayer but not my will, Lord, your will be done. Submission of our will like Christ is one of the most beautiful graces 
that can be seen in the Christian character. It's one that a child of God ought to aim for in everything that he wants, in every way that he wants to be like Jesus. And the person who can say from their heart, when a bitter cup is placed in front of them, not my will be done, your will be done. That believer has reached then a high place in the school of God. And then there was the grace of God. Look at verse 43. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Notice his prayer resulted in strength. There was no one on earth that could give Jesus the strength that he needed at that moment. And how many times have we been in that place when we know that, hey, what I need not right now cannot come from anybody but God. There was no one on earth that could help Jesus or give him the strength that he needed. It took divine strength because of the most mental and emotional and spiritual torment that he was suffering it totally drained him. And I think a lot of time emotional stress is a lot more exhausting than physical strength. It drains you. It drains you. And that's what Jesus was experiencing. The, the mental, the, the thought, the emotional, all of that, that trauma. And Satan would have killed Jesus on the spot if he could have. But instead an angel came. And brought Jesus, the man, the supernatural strength that he needed to carry on with what the Father gave him to do. The third thing that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is an example of the exceeding guilt and sinfulness of, of sin. We're meant to see the exceeding guilt and sinfulness of sin in Christ's agony. And the bloody sweat and all the distress of his body and mind that, that, that the passage describes in verse 44. Look what it says. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping. I'm sorry. And, and verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The lesson here at first sight may not be clear. I think a lot of times we, we, we read right through that. But look, again, it, in verse 44, it describes what he's feeling, what he's going through. I mean, how can, we, how can we explain the deep agony that Jesus was going through at that moment in the garden? What reason can we give for the intense suffering that he was experiencing? That suffering mentally and bodily that he was clearly going through. There's only one acceptable answer. It was caused by the weight, the burden, the heaviness of the world's imputed sin. At that time of prayer, the weight, the burden, and the heaviness of that sin that, he, that was being put upon him, it started to press upon him in a strange way. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Galatians 3.13, Paul said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Everything that Jesus was experiencing in the garden should have been what we experienced. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine? I mean, some of the things that we think are so stressful that just give us that agony and that that stress nothing compared to what was put on Jesus the word agony there in verse 44 it means severe emotional strain and anguish along with violent struggle and physical strife being strengthened Jesus broke out into a passion of prayer and verse 44 says notice he prayed more earnestly or fervently the word earnestly there means it means to stretch every nerve was stretched to the breaking point in Jesus's body and the sweat poured down and it was sweat mixed with blood now remember Luke was a doctor the other three gospels don't explain this They don't mention this part. Luke's the only one to mention this sweating drops of blood in his gospel. And his use of the word like in verse 44, it may suggest that the sweat merely fell to the ground like drops of blood. But there is a rare physical phenomenon known as hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. And that's where under great emotional stress, the tiny blood vessels rupture in the sweat glands and produces a mixture of blood and sweat. So we can't even begin to imagine, much less describe what Jesus was feeling, what was going through his body, his mind, the intense pressure and agony that causes extraordinary misery that Dr. Luke explained. It was that enormous weight of these iniquities that was laid upon him that made him suffer these agonies. It was the sense of the world's guilt and all of the sin of the whole world weighing him down that made even the eternal son of God sweat great drops of blood. And that's why we have to be careful not to take Christ's death on the cross lightly. Thinking that our blessed Lord's life and death was nothing more more than a a great example of self-sacrifice. Because that dishonors Jesus and it makes him look like nothing more than a martyr. There's a lot of martyrs in this world. But none that, that died for our sins. And Jesus' life wasn't taken. He gave it. That's the amazing thing. He went to the cross knowing that he could have stopped the whole thing. Think about that. But he said, no, I got to do this. I got to do this. Because I love the people so much. 
that, that makes it more different than anybody else. Knowing he could stop it, but didn't. Because it was the Father's will and the love of God who still loved the world. We have to hold on tight to the old doctrine that Jesus was bearing our sins. He was our sin bearer. Both in the garden, he was bearing them emotionally and mentally through in prayer, and he bore our sins on the cross. No other doctrine can ever explain this passage or satisfy the conscious conscience of guilty man. If we're to see the sinfulness of sin in its true colors, and if we're to learn to hate sin with a godly hatred, and if we're to learn something about the intense misery of, of those souls in hell, if we're to understand something about the unspeakable, indescribable love of Jesus, and if we're to comprehend Christ's ability to understand and relate with those that are in trouble and suffering, then let us think about the agony in the garden often. What Jesus went through. The depth of that agony should give us some idea of what we owe to Jesus. Jesus paid that debt that he didn't owe because he knew we couldn't pay that debt. He paid a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. The depth of that agony, again, gives us some idea of what we owe Jesus. He paid our debt of sin on the cross. And then the last thing that we see in these verses is an example of the weakness of even the best of saints. We're told that while our Lord was in agony, his disciples were sleeping. They were exhausted from grief. Look at verse 45. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. It means from grief of everything that was going on as well. Even though Jesus clearly commanded them to pray and he clearly warned them against temptation, the flesh overcame their spirit. While Jesus was sweating great drops of blood, his apostles were sleeping. Passages like this teaches, teaches great lessons. And we ought to thank God that they've been written for our admonition and our advice. They're written for our learning. They're meant to teach us humility. If the apostles can behave this way, then the Christian needs to remember, as Paul said, he who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. Think about it. These were the apostles. They lived with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They hung out with Jesus for three years. They saw the wonders that he did, the miracles that he did. They, they, they experienced it. And they still... Couldn't hang on. We need to remember that he who thinks he stands should take heed lest they fall. These lessons are meant to reconcile believers to death. 
to acquaint them and, and to, to help merge them with death, to make them long, yearn for that glorious body that we're going to receive one day, that, 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 you know, when Jesus returns. But then and only then will we be able to wait upon God through these difficult times of sufferings like Jesus did. That'll be the only time we're able to wait on God without these feeble bodies getting tired and then we can serve him day and night in his temple. And when Jesus went back to them and he found them sleeping, he gently rebuked them. Look what he said in verse 46. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. That's why I entitled this, Are You Sleeping? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we sleeping? Are we neglecting our relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do we have a relationship with Christ? Have we made him our Lord and Savior? We sleep and he's working. He's always working. We sleep while the whole world is lying in darkness. We sleep and sin is taking over the minds of men. And how many who claim to be Christians are fast asleep, spiritually speaking? Maybe physically as well. They're fast asleep, not for sorrow like the disciples, but in self-indulgence, doing their own thing. In self-indulgence and sin. Why did Jesus give the gentle, reproachful, why are you sleeping? To the disciples in verse 46. So that it would be kind of like some kind of an alarm, like an alarm clock to our conscience. To wake us up out of our deep sleep. And it may, may it be a continual encouragement to our will and to our heart. As, as the scripture says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it's always weak. It's always weak. And then he rebukes them as well as encourages them. Rise and pray. That's what we need to do. Rise and pray. Why? He said, so you won't give in to temptation. That's many times why we lose, why we, we, we lose the battles, the spiritual battles in our life. We fight them with the flesh. We fight them with carnal things. Instead of getting to that place to be alone with God like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Getting alone. Just you and God. And just pouring out your heart to him. And saying, Lord, hey, Lord, if this, this cup can pass for me, if, if, you know, if this can just get out of my life, great. I'd like that. But Lord, not my will be done. Recognizing that he may have something better for me. And remember, whatever God's will is for us, it's the best thing for us. It might not be where we'd like to be. But if 
troubles and, and afflictions are his will for me, then that's the best place I can be. It's the best place I can be. Because God in his infinite wisdom knows what I need at the moment. God knows what I need and how long I need it. And as I've said before, God always has his hand on the thermostat to the furnace of suffering. He knows when to turn the heat up, how long to leave it on, and he knows when to turn it down. And as Paul said, he will never give you more than you can handle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness for your grace, for your wonderful mercies, God. Father, I pray that as Jesus said to his disciples, why do you sleep? May we search our hearts this evening and ask ourselves, have I been sleeping? Have I been indulging myself? Have I been indulging in sin? and not nourishing my relationship with Christ. For neglecting to pray, to read, to worship. And may this be an alarm clock tonight to wake us up to that fact. And know, and we know what we need to do. And may we do it for his glory and for our good. And maybe you're here tonight and, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But the Holy Spirit has moved in your heart. As we're praying, <clears throat> if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Raise your hand up quickly and then and put it back down. Anybody at all? If there's anyone here who maybe has backslidden or has neglected that relationship with the Lord and wants to renew it tonight, raise your hand and put it back down. Anybody else? Awesome. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right, I'm going to pray with the one that raised their hand and you pray to the Lord and let him know what's in your heart. Father, I pray for that one, Lord, that, that raised their hand and, and Father wants to make things right with you, Lord, and, and get back on track, Lord. Father, may you just instill in that person, Lord, Father, what they need to do and to get back on track, Lord, to to get alone with you, Father, as Jesus got alone with you in the garden. Father, to seek you through prayer, through reading the word, God. And Father, may you and that one have that awesome time together, one-on-one. Worshiping, praying, having that fellowship, God. Put a hedge about them. Move in them, God, through them. Again, for your glory and their good. May you bless each one here tonight, Father. Bless our time, God, as 
Brother Dennis comes up now and leads us in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.